I, uh, he did it again. Um, pastor Tom uh, refers to himself, uh, he, he mentioned he's the assistant pastor. And um, those of you that might catch this reference, you know what I mean when I say he's the assistant to uh, the lead pastor. He's not the assistant pastor. There's still a couple more rungs he needs to climb. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. And it's rude of me to even throw that joke out. But some of you know the show I'm referring to. You know, it's a running thing season after season. So I'll probably keep it up with Pastor Tom as well. But the reality is he has, we, we knew when we were getting him, we were getting somebody of quality. We just were a little surprised how much quality there was. So we're really pleased with him. Um, I also want to mention the uh, softball event yesterday. I believe uh, Jeremy Jones was scheduled to speak um, to address all the teams that had gathered. If it was yesterday, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so I didn't hear how that went, but um, it was an opportunity to present the ministry that we've embraced here at Faith Celebrate Recovery and um, couldn't be prouder of Jeremy and the opportunities that he gets and the ministry that he's trying to provide in the time that the Lord's giving him to other churches that are also looking to start um, their own um, aspect of Celebrate Recovery under their roof because we believe that it would help our entire community to have multiple locations, multiple nights, those kinds of things. And it's taken us a while to learn how to do what we do here. And Jeremy, because he is available to the Lord's leading, um, is is also available to encourage other churches to consider the same. So be in prayer for that, if you would. We want to see that ministry really take root in our area and uh, so that we could be a part of it and see more and more lives be transformed for the glory of God. So we know that that is, um, that is taking place right before our eyes, so we're excited to see that. Um, so the, the text this morning, we're coming to First Peter chapter 2, and I don't have an intro, that was it. So we got to, to, we got to pick on the assistant pastor, we got to talk about softball, we got to do all those things, and that was the intro to First Peter. And you say, what does it have to do with the text? Nothing. You know that that's the case. So... Um, I, I want to mention too, as we're getting started, because we're we're all trying to figure out our new environment and and what we're expecting and things. This morning in the first service, I went to the B Lee Center to listen to the worship over there for a little bit, and um, I didn't do so in the second service. I was here in this room, but uh, I, I got to tell you, if the word gets out, there's a bit of a hidden gem when you go into those other environments and sort of the acoustical quality, if you will, of the other rooms and the fact that we've put um, live worship leaders in our, our other venues and stuff, there is a different kind of unique sweet spirit that happens. And it almost feels like, I don't know if you've ever been involved in a church plant before, but it has that kind of environment. I've been in, in several of those environments and there's an energy there. There's like, okay, we're coming together. It's weird. It's not what we're used to, but we're united uh, in song and in worship and things. And so um, if you're hesitant, you're not sure because you say, well, I went to register. I couldn't get into the auditorium. I'm telling you, if the word gets out, the the kind of the environment that's happening in like the B. Lee Center, and we think we're going to be opening up the youth building soon because of the fact that our people are coming back, you may end up picking those venues first. I don't know. The only downside, I'm going to warn you, is that you have to see me on about a 16-foot screen. And so I apologize ahead of time for those of you that are in the Bealey Center. Um, may the Lord be with you. And uh, those of you that have like 70-inch TVs at home and that kind of thing. So, um, But this is, um, what I love about this is that we're not just saying, well, if we can't have church my way, I'm not going to have it at all. 
This is very powerful. It's very moving to see us get back and come back and do things that uh, that these opportunities are presenting for us. So I'm proud of you all and just really encouraged by um, your presence here and the fact that people are staying engaged online and uh, and tuning in and things. Uh, this is the summer. We, you know, in, in normal situations, uh, pre-COVID, we wouldn't know what we were going to get for attendance. And then you add on top of some pandemic thing, um, you know, it has a tendency to, to make the days even stranger and more, uh, less, uh, predictable. So, um, we just appreciate you being with us and, and moving through this time with us. So again, more stuff in the intro that has nothing to do with first Peter chapter two. What we're going to see as we come into this text, we have two tiny little, but very potent verses in verses 11 and 12 of first Peter two. And what Peter is doing is he's kind of walking us into a, a section of his thought and he's, he's shifting gears again. He's been laying some groundwork and now he's taking us to a new level of where his intent of, of, of addressing the, um, the scattered, the sojourners, the exiles, his intent is now coming into clearer focus. And these two verses are ushering us into those topics. They're not bringing us there yet. They're just bringing us in the realm, in the, if you were to picture like a house, it's like we've been brought into the mudroom in good old Mainer speak. And in the mudroom, in these ver- these two verses, we're going to see he's setting us up and he's preparing us as he did with his readers of the day to embrace some very difficult things. He's only going to do it in two verses. He's not taking two chapters to sweet talk us. So he's moving into it quickly. But nevertheless, he's setting us up to wrestle with things that we're not going to really want to hear. He's about to urge them to do the uncomfortable, to battle their flesh and to be fully engaged in it. He's going to bring us through this topic, this, this uncomfortable and unnatural topic of submission, both to, uh, in our, in our civil, uh, environments, but also, uh, in our work environments, in our households. How we learn to submit as believers in Jesus Christ, he's going to demonstrate and urge us that this is one of the incredible testimonies you and I get to lay out before the world. He's going to do so with a really simple breakdown. In these two verses, he's going to say, these are some things that you're going to have to lose in order to do this well. And then these are some things you're going to have to hang on to and keep if you're going to endure and do this for the glory of God. So let's start that breakdown, that kind of path, if you will. Let's go to verse 11. And Peter says to us, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We won't camp here for a long time on this word soul, but we need to know that this is referring to the whole you, the whole person. That isn't just this. When we say spirit, sometimes we think of the thing that's kind of nebulous. We can't touch it. We can't see it. But soul here is referring to all of you. This is important when we think about what we hear in the world today because we say the certain things I've done, they just affect, say, my body and not really my spirit or the inner me or anything like that. Yet the proof in the pudding is that these things do stick with us. They haunt us. They they wrestle deep with our consciences. And, and the scriptures say we eventually have to learn how to pack those down and sear our consciences to the feeling of that if we're going to continue to resist the Lord. So there's a warning here that this war that's being waged is against the whole you, not just one aspect of you. Well, that's a little bit later. So let's start where he started. Beloved. 
Peter is not just saying what you and I hear so often when, you know, political seasons, you know, it's in full swing, we know, but it's getting, it's going to get funner, you know, in the next couple months. And, uh, and what do they always do? They'll send you a spam message, a letter, a voicemail, and they always address you as friend because they know you. They know what your concerns are. They feel your feelings. Friend, it's time to vote for me. And, and there's a sense of when we hear those kinds of greetings, we just, we sense the emptiness of it. We sense that it's like, there, there's just no point to it. There's no depth to it. But Peter is actually saying, listen, you are beloved. I'm reminding you that even if I fail in my love for you, which I certainly have, I know you are loved. Why would Peter be able to say this with such conviction? Because he's encountered it personally. We've shared, we've used Peter as an example in previous messages this year of, of someone who's so down and, and walked through so much failure and Jesus singles him out, goes to him and says, I forgive you. I love you. And I take you back into my mission and I will give you purpose and use. And so Peter has experienced what it really means to have the title beloved. So when he's sharing it, he's saying, I love you. Don't forget that the readers of Peter's letter are feeling the tension of this discouragement. They're, they're feeling separated and, and moved away. And there isn't that kind of nucleus of camaraderie that so many of us have come to appreciate and maybe even take for granted. So Peter just whispers, beloved. It's not just a way to open the sentence. He's reminding them who they are. He continues, familiar phrases for us, sojourners and exiles. You are, you are not building your house with wood and nails, he's saying. It's an image going back to even Abraham where it's like, you are going to live in these erected tents. So as the Lord moves, you're going to collapse and you're going to move along with him. You were not meant to stay here. That's what Peter is saying. You're a sojourner. You're a journeyman. You're, you're meant to travel. You're just waiting for the instructions as to when and how. And of course, we know we've spent a lot of time talking about the fact that they were exiles. So I'm bringing us into this idea here that Peter is not scolding his readers. He's about to say some very difficult things, but he's not correcting them like Paul had to would say the Corinthian church. So it's time for you to get your act together. It's time for you to get rid of these things. It's time for you to clean up. You've been doing this too long. Guilty, 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 guilty. This isn't what Peter's doing. I almost picture like the coach who's got his high school team or his college team and he knows the not just the game clock is ticking but the clock of these students' lives that if they don't win now, they're going to graduate and never get this experience again. And the coach is huddling them in. It's the end of the championship game and he's saying to him, if you listen to my voice, if you trust what I'm about to say and you dial in and you engage in the things that you know to do, I'm I'm in the same boat that you're in. I want you to win. I've experienced what this feels like and I don't want you to miss out on it too. So, so let's bring it in tight. Let's, let's, let's listen to the, to the plan. Let's execute like we've always known to do. You see, there's a, there's an encouragement that's coming here when Peter says, beloved, your journeyman, this is, this is what you were meant for. This is what your purpose is. Peter is demonstrating for us here. He's laying out in this pattern that doctrine, by God's grace, doctrine always comes before duty. That what we understand and what we know from the scriptures helps us understand so much better why we need to do what we're called to do. That's the Lord's grace. It says, I will explain for you through the, the principles of my word why this matters to me. 
and why it should matter to you. It doesn't mean he gives us an answer for everything. Sometimes we obey because God said it and we can't see it in the here and now. But in terms of the reasons why God's people do the things that they do or supposed to do, it's spelled out for us in scripture. We get our principles from God's word and then we're encouraged to practice. Or we could say it a different way. We believe the truth and then we behave based on what we believe. And whether it's God's word or not, we always behave based on what we believe. And we have to be very uh, in tune with the fact that what I just did says something about what I believe to be true. For good or for bad. So what is Peter spelling out for us? That the doctrine that he wants uh, God's children to act on is the doctrine of salvation. You are God's. You are elect. You are, while you are sojourners and exiles, you belong to the family of God. You are of a royal priesthood. You are a stone, a living stone in a building. All the things that he's been spelling out for us is establishing the who we are so we can be who we're supposed to be. So salvation is the doctrine. So what's the duty he's calling us to? And it's this, it's this very difficult concept we've got to wrestle with called submission. So he's setting this up for us. That's why he has to urge us like that coach in the huddle. I'm urging you. I'm, I'm, I'm begging you to engage with tenacity to take this on. Why? Because this is not going to come naturally for you. You're not going to like what I have to say. You're not going to feel good about doing what you have to do. Even in obedience, this will not feel good. So therefore, I'm urging you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, these impulses, these desires that you and I uh, were born with, partially because we were born in sin, but also we were created with these, these kind of longings in our lives to look for the, the, the culmination or the outcome of these things in God himself. We were created with the capacity to worship, so we long for the good but we do something different with that longing. And that's what Peter is warning about. These passions are what we pervert, what we twist from its original design. That which we were naturally given an inclination towards, we say, but I don't want to wait for it. I don't want to surrender to somebody else who needs to provide it for me, say, like the God of all creation. Instead, I don't want to wait for his timetable, his manner of things. I need to speed this up. I need to get it in a way that I can embrace. One aspect of life that you and I are created with is this desire for security. We want to trust that someone's got a plan much bigger than us. That's why... Um, uh, religions are formed all over the world. It's why out of nothing people start worshiping. Well, there must be a God for that. There must be a God for that. Must be a God for that because we have this capacity to worship someone bigger than us. But in our desire to have that kind of security, we start to manipulate the situation. We start to look for ways that we can get security now and security in the ways that I define it. So I work extra. I kill myself in order to uh, get all of the, the money that I can because something feels good about having a really fat bank account. Or I, I protect all of my, um, my relationships. I have people around me that agree with me because it gives me security that I don't ever have to wrestle through the disagreement of, of, of two people not getting along or something like that. So I just move on. As soon as there's friction, I just move on because I need to protect me in this life. There's all forms of which just this one area of desiring something like security 
uh, how it gets twisted or perverted to be this passion that can so often get us in trouble. This is what Peter is warning us about. He's already done so in chapter 1. We look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of what you already know doesn't cut it. Your former ignorance, you had an excuse when you didn't know, but you kept waking up to the reality that it didn't pay off. It didn't satisfy. Or I've got this splitting headache because I said last night I would never do this again, but I did it anyway, and now I'm paying for it this morning. And so I'll never do that again. Your former ignorance always brought you to a place of saying, I'm sure it'll work this time. I'm sure it will fulfill. I'm sure it will scratch that itch. And then the realization is it doesn't. So Peter's saying, as obedient children, trust the fact that the end result of all of your own passions is emptiness. So you don't have to be conformed to that. You don't have to practice those things anymore. You've been rescued from that. Later in the letter, in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he tells us to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, that's what you used to do because it seemed to, to be sufficient in the day. All the living in sensuality and the passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless, idolatry, all of the, the nasty list, if you will, that Peter is putting out there. He says, you used to try to find some fulfillment in that and they never satisfied. So for the time that you have left in this bag of bones that we wake up in every single day, you no longer have to give in to those human passions. But instead, you can actually live for the will of God. It's interesting, too, that even the culture at the time in the Greek culture through philosophers, Plato and others, is they had phrases in their language that would... Uh, that they would admit that they can't trust all the passions that they feel. You think about how far society has gone that way back in that first century kind of era, there was already a general acknowledgement, even amongst the, the secular thinking that don't do everything that feels good. It will get in, you will get in trouble. And that was a, a part of the mainstream, if you will, of philosophy. So Peter is speaking scripture and he's coming at it from a standpoint of the Holy Spirit can, can get you out of these jams. But there was a common understanding that we just don't do whatever we want to do all the time. What kind of reckless living is that? Now, many did. It doesn't mean that they all obeyed, but there was something there out there that they understood. We probably should expect to pay some consequences for this. What do we hear now? The only consequence you have to pay is not living for yourself. The only consequence you have to pay is not indulging in the thing that you think is going to bring you happiness and fulfillment. That's why Peter said that this is a war that is being waged on us. The, the war seems to be on all fronts. It's, a, it's an engagement and battle that's drawing us in, right? We know that fill in the blank of whatever the thing is which is different for so many different people. But you fill in the blank and it draws us in and it's such a magnetic force. This war is being waged and I think so often it's helpful to imagine, if you will, that there's just these forces of saying, come on, you can do this. Come on, give in. That, that, that want nothing but your destruction because the war doesn't stop with just your engagement. And say, okay, boys, pack up. Let's go home. We did our job here. We got them to bite. 
No, it, it, the general is saying, I will be satisfied with nothing short of total annihilation. So not only uh, is there a battle to get us to engage, but then it starts to weigh heavy on our conscience. Then we do wake up the next day going, why did I do that? Why am I continuing to be plagued by this? And then, and then the further path of destruction is that those that are around us, as they see us living more and more and more for ourselves, which is what these indulgences are, are saying, I can't be around you anymore. I don't even know who you are. And so the destruction, the path just gets wider and wider and wider. This is why Peter is calling us engage in the battle because these things are waging war on your soul. There isn't a part of your life these things won't touch and won't destroy. In counseling, we call these things life-dominating sins. You picture if you were to set aside your, your life or diagram your life like a, like a pizza and you have all these different pieces, what, what sin does is it works like a spiral and just starts messing around all of those things. Like, you know, in addiction, it doesn't leave your finances alone, does it? Or in sexual idolatry, it doesn't leave your marriage alone, does it? It's all the aspects of your life start getting infected and plagued by all of those things. This is Peter saying it is a war. It is not just a, I feel motivated today to be a good person. Peter knows what he's talking about. He knows the shortcomings and the weight of failures of the flesh, perhaps better than any other New Testament writer outside of Paul. Before coming to Christ, Paul had had uh, done his due diligence to work against the Lord and in a lot of shameful ways and a lot of ways that the Lord really needed to heal him by his grace. But Peter, even on the other side of coming to Christ, seemed to keep stepping in it time and time again, even doing the things that we would say, I kind of get it. I understand. Peter's warning to, to do battle against the flesh isn't just with all the stuff that we call ugly or nasty or blatantly sinful. Peter knows what it's like to be so zealous for a thing that he feels in his core and in his being and then to act on it impulsively only to get shot down by the will of God. We know that Peter, when he was walking with Jesus some 30 years prior, he's he's uh, listening to Jesus explain to his buddies, his friends, his followers, I'm hanging it up. I'm, I'm, I'm about to fulfill the mission that I was sent here to do. I'm going to lay my life down. And, and Peter is thinking, we're just getting good at this. We're going to retire together. Jesus, we're going to fish, not for my own career, but we're just going to fish to have fun. And we're going to put our feet up and float in the boat and everything. You're not going anywhere. I will not let a hair of your head get harmed. We would all go, that's just loyalty. It's, it's not just Peter being Peter. It's any of us caring for our friend and somebody saying, I'm going to be leaving you. We'd be expressing to them, I don't want you to leave. But Jesus' response to this reveals to us, this is a very fleshly, even if it's understand, understood amongst us who are in the flesh, to the kingdom of God, Peter's response was, was keeping the mission of the gospel and of the cross from, from happening. So Jesus doesn't just say, Peter, Peter, poor misdirected, misguided guy. I love your passion and your zeal. And you know what? It's things like that. It's going to build this church and you're going to, we're going to do great things with that kind of energy. You're a little off and no, what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. I was sent here for something serious, not for vacation, not for retirement, not for our longtime friendship that way. So Peter 
knows what it's like to engage in the impulses of the flesh, even in ways that we would say, is that so wrong? In that moment and in that instance, it certainly was. Of course, we know that Peter gave in more blatantly to the kinds of fleshly impulses that we'd all say, ah, it's not that great, when he denied even knowing Jesus as Jesus is being marched to his crucifixion. So this war against the 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 flesh that we wake up in every day the the thing that infects all of us and and plagues us all isn't just a matter of doing the the right things on the on the one list and avoiding the bad things on the other list that it's so messy so intricate so us so human that it shows up in all the kinds of ways that just go how are we supposed to answer this how, how am i supposed to win this it's god's grace that shows up, that showed up for Peter, that, that restored his life, that made him still impactful for the kingdom of God because his, his sin, even in those quote-unquote cleaner areas, had infected him so badly. Now, we have to be careful. I don't know what your Christian experience has been like, what kind of church environment you grew up in, how long you've been wrestling with these things, how well you know the scriptures and everything, but we'd be remiss in when we're talking about the the vile and the sinful and the fact that our flesh gets in the way, we have to deal with this balance, this warning of making sure we're walking through some tension together this side of eternity, because it is an ever going to be as clean as do these things stay away from those things isn't there always something in the middle like how much of this are we supposed to do how much of that are we supposed to avoid where do we draw those lines and of course scripture is helpful to us in other places that help us realize that tension but what we have to be careful of is not to creep into some form of legalism from a desire that just wants to do everything clean and pure like we should and then expecting that we know how to make sure everybody else does the same Peter had given us in chapter 4 a pretty ugly list. Some things that we, for the most part, go, yeah, we should stay away from that. Even the world would say these things aren't very fruitful and they've got plans and strategies and classes and stuff to help us not fall into those things or to get over those things. Peter, uh, Paul had warned Timothy that some would come and out of a desire initially to stay away from that cliff like Peter shares with that ugly list that we would set the rules so far back over here so we wouldn't even get close to the cliff. And and Paul warns Timothy as he's learning how to minister and to lead a church, he says, be careful of those that will come and start inventing all kinds of rules that might seem to us like they're keeping us away from the cliff, but they're doing something a little bit different. He says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything God created by God is uh, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, doctrine will let us know that we can't just say, well, Paul just said anything I'm thankful for, I can do. It's not what he said. He's referring specifically to food. The controversy was, can you eat the stuff that is offered to idols? And he's like, it's steak. It didn't get any voodoo juju on it or anything like that. 
It's steak. It might have the flavor and seasoning you don't like, but if you receive it with thanksgiving, consecrate it to the Lord, it's useful. You have to be careful about making some of these um, cross applications because Peter has spelled out specifically the things that we should stay away from and just being thankful for them doesn't make them holy to God. There are other parts of scripture that balance out how we should look at this, but the warning is still this. Mankind will take a good intention. We got to keep people clean and pure and holy and then create systems of control that say, this is how we're defining. You stay away from those things. You know, and I've, I've been around it, you know, most of my growing up and, and I've been really, um, blessed to have had great teaching throughout my, my growing up experience. And I loved church growing up and was taught well, but there were definitely some aspects of that, that, that came through as we know the exact specific black and white standard that you're to adhere to in order to still be holy and clean. And we have to be careful to not make those pronouncements based on the fact that clear lines and easy to discern principles give us that sense of security. We feel better because we can make those rules. Some of this isn't as easy to define and wade through. Some of this requires living in the tension of the wisdom of the spirit. When is it right to uh, embrace this? When is it wrong? Is something that is right for this person wrong for me because I've been proven to not handle it so well? Those kinds of things all come into play. The sinful human heart, that is our flesh, will even take attempts to do the right thing and twist them towards our own control. That's how cults are started and other forms of religion and things. So the warning from Paul in Galatians 5.16 is appropriate. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So to summarize verse 11, yes, that was just one verse. Why would I bother to engage in this intense battle against my flesh? There are times when I'm sitting in church, and I'm motivated or the, the, the moment after I sin or the day after I fail, I'm motivated. But a little bit of time goes away and a little bit more of that pull and that magnetic. Why would I engage in this? Because it promises such good feeling and yet it always seems to lie. So why would I do it? Peter's answer is because, first and foremost, you are a sojourner. These actions and these, these appetites and, these, and these, uh, this conduct is not befitting of your mission. You are meant to pack up your tent and move where the Lord leads. Those that are engaged in these practices, it's all they've got. They built their homes with, with wood and nails, and they're, in a sense, stuck in that endless, what Paul uses in Ephesians 4, I believe it is, the futility of their mind, which is kind of like that banging your head on a brick wall. I keep repeating the same thing, and I'm all bloody, but at the same time, it keeps promising me, and I keep biting. That's what they do. You're set apart. You're different. You're holy. You're in exile. This isn't your home. Second answer Paul would give, Peter would give us is because of the war against our soul. He's saying this is a, a, a spiritual battle that infects every part of your life. What Peter is trying to tell us is that abstaining from the flesh doesn't suppress our lives. 
abstaining from the things that just continue to prove to tear us down and break us up. He's just saying, stay away from all that destruction. It's not a suppression of life. We are a little bit more conditioned to think that all the things we have to say no to, that real life is in those things. But but when we abstain from it, we are actually led towards real life. It's like a gateway into that which we were originally created to enjoy to begin with. So we have to let go of this phony, this lying life and instead embrace one that is real. Find rescue in it. Let's jump down to verse 12. Therefore, he didn't say therefore, but we're going to say therefore going into this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, which is in this context, it's unbelievers. So anybody who's not in Christ, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. A couple of ways of looking at that phrase, day of visitation. I have a leaning towards one. I don't have a, a pronouncement that I'm going to say is definitely what's going on. Some would say that the day of visitation is when Christ comes back. So that the implication here is Peter is saying one day, eventually, all of your good deeds will be vindicated when they see Jesus returning and they go, oh, okay, they were right. And we were wrong. There's that aspect of it. But this seems to be a little bit more impactful or personal towards our witness and our testimony towards those that are looking at us now. So I lean a little bit more towards this being the day of visitation, meaning the day their personal visitation, uh, salvation visits them. The day that individual says, I'm receiving Christ. He is the Lord of my life. I am receiving the payment, the forgiveness of my sins. I am a new creation in Christ. And it's because of the conduct or it was aided greatly by the conduct of those that would say they are Christians. So God gets the glory on the day that they are saved based on the efforts of our faithfulness to the Lord. That's how I would look at that phrase, the day of visitation. Uh, there's some disagreement out there, and it's I don't know the Greek to be able to tell you which one it really is. So, The Christian life is more than about the things that we can't, we don't, or we won't do. You see how gracious the Lord is to us? He doesn't just tell us, empty yourself out. Just give, 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 sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice with nothing to come in and to fill you. He knows what he created us for. Uh, Paul refers to us as being um, jars of clay, these, these clay pots, these vessels, and those are created to contain things. So when God says, clean out, get rid of, move on, abstain from, it's because he has something better to fill it with. So we have the responsibility for what we can control. That's why Peter keeps using the word conduct. And what he wants us to take ownership of is this honorable life, this noble lifestyle, these, this, this beautiful approach to life, our living out our virtuous um, conduct before others. In other words, it's, it's attractive to others based on who we are, our character, or the things that we do. It doesn't mean they all agree doesn't even mean that they say, I need to get me more of that. But they look at it and say, but I can respect it. I appreciate it. So is Peter saying that if we do these things, they won't slander us if we're good? Not if we look at the wording here. This is not a strategy for avoiding conflict or accusation or slander. But it's just making sure that their accusations don't stick. 
Don't give them reason to be right on their accusations. We want those accusations to remain phony, I guess is how Peter might also say it. Again, later on in the letter in chapter 4, he doubles down on this a little bit in verse 14. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory of a spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't do wrong things and then say, they just don't like me because I'm a Christian. No, we don't like you because you killed our cousin. What's wrong with you? It's, you earned their label. You earned their reputation. Make sure their accusations have no merit. He says in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Christians of that day were being accused of all kinds of things. You're being disloyal to Caesar. You're not going along with the state plans. You're bucking the system or something like that. Those were false accusations, even while they're trying to learn submission in that system. They're, they're, they must be teaching that all slaves are just free to walk out on their masters. I bet that's what they're preaching in the, in their little enclaves and gatherings. That wasn't true. They don't care for their fellow man because they don't participate in our festivals. They're snobbing us. They're better than us. That certainly wasn't true. They even accused them of being atheists because they didn't have idols in their homes. These are people dedicating and selling their lives out to a God that no one else can see. And they're being told, you just don't believe in gods. All of these accusations were being leveled at them, but they were false. So we don't engage in these things because there's a promise that they work in the here and now. That's sort of like a Christian pragmatism that we can fall into that says, uh, well, we're going to do the things that are effective, that are tangible, that we can see the results right here and right now. That's not available to us all the time. Most of the time it isn't. We don't do the right things because it works. We do it because it's the right thing. Slander is inevitable. And Peter says, when they speak evil of you. All he cares about is don't give them fuel for their fire. He says, our, our efforts will eventually be recognized. They will see your good deeds. They'll be impressed by your beautiful lifestyle. And then maybe if they're coming around to a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ, they'll even give uh, the glory to God through your lifestyle and through your testimony. Slander will come to the believer. You know that there's no way for us to win the PR campaign of this world. As a church of Jesus Christ, we stand for things that are primarily offensive to those in the world. So we're not going to win that PR battle, but our good deeds will make our character impenetrable. And I like this little reminder that God's glory remains or should remain our most important goal. When we were going through Second Corinthians, I liked um, the phrase is really one of my favorites in scripture, just a tiny little phrase in chapter five, verse nine. He says, we make it our aim to please him. And the reason why I like that is it reminds me that my desire to glorify God is not always there, that I have to settle it like an account. I have to set my mind on it, that this is what I value. I want his name to be more famous than mine. Why? Because I typically want what satisfies Brent more than anything else. And so that serves as a challenge to me that we make it our aim to please him. Doesn't mean all my attempts will be effective. Doesn't mean that they'll all work. But as long as it's my aim, that's what he honors. 
the battle that we engage in always comes down to what we value, what's worth hanging on to, what's worth fighting for. I remember hearing John Piper some time ago in a in a message where he was, um, I think, speaking in kind of a college campus environment, and they were submitting questions and saying, how would you do this, and how would you explain this? And somebody um, said it. You know, somebody asked the real question that I'm sure so many in the room were thinking, and they said, at our particular age and in the, the age of the Internet and all these sorts of things, how are we supposed to abstain from sexual temptation? And instead of Piper going into things like uh, find an accountability partner and um, put a filter on your web browser and all those kinds of things, which are not wrong in and of themselves to do, he cuts to the core and he says, you will always have this battle, and I'm paraphrasing now, you will always have this battle if the value of your personal intimacy with Jesus Christ remains low. In other words, what I value the most, what I appreciate the most, what is I find worth fighting for, any intrusion or threat to that disgusts me. It sets me on edge. It it, it causes me to instinctively kind of naturally react. Get out of here. I don't I don't have time for you. And so often we don't engage in that aspect of the battle because our value of what we're losing is so low. Warren Wearsby says there's something deeper than obedience because of duty. There's a lot of us that would do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, and that's admirable. But it could go deeper than that, he said, and that's obedience because of devotion. I don't want to risk what I lose in my relationship with Jesus Christ if I give in to this temporary thing that always lies and fails me anyway. If you value instant gratification above all else, you'll continue to engage in a feelings-based conduct a feelings-based manner of life. In other words, if I'm hungry, I don't just go and eat because I, I don't want to be hungry anymore, but I go, this really feels good going down. And I keep going and going and going. And I eat to where I'm like, I don't even want to see another fork of food ever again because I have a feelings-based approach to something that God has born within me to want to desire. And I need it now in my way. But if you desire more to have the reward of God and the daily peace that comes from walking in him, you'll do what's honorable on principle, willing to wait for your reward. We may never get it in this life. I got to be honest with you. There's so many things that I feel like I'm trading in and going, Lord, when are you ever going to come through on this? And it's an incredible battle of the flesh not to just say, I'm standing up for me finally. And I do plenty. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not this uh, monk of a saint who always just lets the world roll over him. But at the same time, there's this battle of like you keep losing it and losing it and losing it. When do you fight to get back what's yours? Is it a trust in the fact that God really has me, that I'm a child of his, not a child of mine? That I'm a, a sojourner on his journey, not just my own? I trust for his payoff, if you will, to use that crude expression, not my own. Hebrews 12, 2, we visited a couple of times in the last few months, and I think it's appropriate to repeat it. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, after, on the other side of the cross, there was something of value on the other side of the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame along the way, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He even says to his audience in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad. How could you be happy about that list? Revile, persecute, other, utter all kinds of evil, but be happy about it. How would I ever get there? He says, for your reward is great in heaven later down the road. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You, you and me on the screen in the other room, you and I are the salt of the earth. The preservation of this society that is melting and falling down, you and I are placed right in the midst of it to do God's work. What are we saying this morning? What is Peter saying to us? Sin wages war on our soul, but Jesus waged war on sin and was victorious in that war. An image that comes to my mind as I watch the passion of the Christ is it's unfolding that beautiful scene that we have from scripture where Jesus is, is, is shaking and wrestling with the thought and the, the natural human fear about what he's about to walk into. And the scripture says that the pressure is so intense. He's got like great drops of blood that are coming out of his sweat pores and everything. Thing. And the movie depicts a shaking kind of finding the courage and trusting in his father and wrestling through prayer to come to the will of his father. And you see this peace come over him where he just settles. And the whole time he's shaking, there's a, a snake slithering its way closer to him. And, and as he settles, he stands up and his face is resolute. His determination is set and his heel comes down on the head of that snake representing Satan's plan to talk him out of it. Don't go through with this. It's not worth it. Jesus won the war that is raging on our souls. The victory is already won. We just continue to give in to the losing battle. Having real victory in real life is going to require that you and I settle our account to just understanding my reward may not and most likely will not come in the here and now. I've got to be ready for it to come later. Instant payoffs, immediate payoffs are so often a lie. And we don't do these things to earn some home in heaven or earn the glories of the next life. Peter is saying we do it because they already fit us. Because we're, we're exiles in that country anyway. So as ambassadors and dwellers here, we do what we would do there. We live it out here. And Peter's not trying to add weight to the church's suffering. He's trying to invite them to win. He's trying to welcome them into uh, the reality and the purpose of it. He's not saying to a bunch of people who are already scared and suffering, oh, and by the way, don't have any fun. You can't have this and you can't do that. He's saying, we know those things lied to you. We know you need a deeper purpose. It's about to get extremely, extremely real in your life. I don't want you wasting your time with those things that cannot give you any real comfort anyway. Subjecting ourselves or what are our passions, according to this text, subjecting ourselves to the authority of God is not a hindrance to the life that we should be living. Instead, it's like walking through the gateway of the life that we've been promised, that we were created to enjoy. I'm repetitive on this particular illustration every so often because it just makes so much sense to me, and I hope it does to you. But I picture this train that continues to move up and down these tracks, and you know what trains do. They head in one direction, and they head back. They have the purpose of carrying the same cargo, or maybe they have the exciting day of getting new cargo in the same old cart and heading to the same destination. 
And so we imagine our train kind of uh, being a, a, a fictitious character. And as he's going across the plains in the Midwest and he's looking out and seeing where the deer and antelope play. And he's going, man, they just have freedom. They get to roam around. Look at that pond. I mean, look at that pond. They get to sip their little lips on everything. And I just, choo, 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 choo. it's all I get to do. They're free and I'm latched down. I'm anchored down. I'm locked in. I can't, you know what? One day the train just says, I'm done with this. I'm going to find me some freedom. I'm hitting that pond as soon as I know right where to do it. And he jumps track and he does what every train would do as it jumps track. He buries himself in the ground, not going any further, ruining all the cargo that he was created to be carrying and all these kinds of things. And we know where we're going with this is that the train was designed to stay on the track and real freedom was actually found in staying in the lane that you were created to stay in to serve the purpose that you were built for. And instead of desiring a false freedom, I mean, what are the deer and antelope really doing out there? They're, they're scenic. They're making a pretty picture, right? But every sound they hear, they're like, oh, who's that? Someone to kill me? Where's the, where's the predator? What do I get? They're not feeling free. They're living in fear all the time. Who's going to come and kill me? Who's going to, yeah, it's a good drink of water, but there might be a bear that wants the same. That's not freedom. That freedom was lying to the train. The deer could have stopped and said, stay on the track, dude. At least someone's looking after you. You're all set. You're taken care of. You don't have to deal with our kind of threats. When you and I forget what we were created to be and what we were created to do by staying on this track, heading towards our destination, we have a tendency to trade that real freedom in for the phony one, and we end up burying ourselves right in the ground. This is what Peter is calling his audience to avoid. He's saying, please hang on, my beloved ones. Understand that you're on a journey. You're not going to experience all of the reward right now. I'm preparing you for the one to come. That's where life is really at. Would you stand? Let's close our time in prayer. And I'm going to ask uh, each location to have their worship leaders prepare to close us out in song. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for bringing us together. I thank you, Lord, for your words. And how potent just two little verses can be for our lives today. Thank you, Lord, for the example of Peter and and the truth that he was bold enough to share. Thank you, Lord, for preserving this scripture for us through all these generations. Now, Lord, call us to adherence. Call us to obedience, but not obedience just out of duty, a fail to be, a fear of being um, in, on your bad side or anything, but because of our devotion to the life that is afforded to us by being in your care. Help us, Lord, not to want to threaten that with anything. Lord, our flesh is so real and active, and the war is real, Lord. So we trust your spirit. We beg your spirit to protect us from ourselves, that we may bring glory to you, and that others will bring glory to you as a result of our testimony. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.